0: Welcome to New Books and Film. I am your host, Joel Cherney. In the not-too-distant future, next Sunday A.D., is the first line of the theme song for Mystery Signs Theater 3000. The series began as a local Minnesota TV show and ran for 10 seasons through 1999 and is still immensely popular. Welcome to New Books and Film. I am your host, Joel Cherney. In the not-too-distant future, next Sunday A.D., is the first line of the theme song for Mystery Science Theater 3000. The series began as a local Minnesota TV show and ran for 10 seasons through 1999 and is still immensely popular. Chris Morgan is a writer who specializes in 90s pop culture and wrote the book The Comic Galaxy of Mystery Science Theater 3000. Twelve Classic Episodes and the Movies They Lampoon, published by McFarland in 2015. Chris talks with me about his personal interest in the series, as well as the film's MST3K rift. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Chris Morgan. Hi, Chris. Thanks for talking to
1: me today. Uh, Hi. Thanks for having me.
0: Most of the authors I interview wrote academic works on film topics, so I'm always happy to talk to uh, what we might call a quote-unquote popular author. Of course, there's already been academic books and conferences that dealt with MST3K. But let's start with some background information. I know you have your own podcast, Existential Parachute Pants, but can you give me some details about your writing and other activities?
1: Uh, sure. Like you, well, you mentioned, you know, I'll, I'll start where, you know, you can be like... Least- Lead in there to talk about accidental parachute pants. Uh, Call in a '90s pop culture podcast, which is the podcast I do, which has in terms of writing a corresponding sort of blog about '90s pop culture that I have done. Uh, where for almost two years now, I've written a daily post in some way about uh, '90s pop culture. It's usually, pretty light. I, I, you know, sometimes quite short. It's just you know, just a thing uh, I want to do. Um, uh, sort of a counterbalance to the rising sort of. Uh, Ironization and nostalgia of 90s pop culture to treat it more, uh, not necessarily seriously, but to actually treat it with at least some sort of depth and substance. And because I do a lot of sort of pop culture stuff on uh, other writing that I do, I, I write uh, frequently for the website Paste Magazine about TV and things of that nature. Uh, I've, you know, and I've done some movie review sort of things as well. And I've written about sports also uh, for several years, uh, fantasy sports and so on and so forth, and um, other sort of writing projects here and there. I'm, you know, a bit of a writing dilettante who likes to, you know, uh, just do various different things, if only just, you know, always have something to be uh, sort of working on.
0: So um, I'm going to assume that um, without, I don't know if it makes a difference as far as your age is concerned, did you grow up, would you say you grew up in the 90s?
1: Uh. Yeah, it's, um, I mean, it's it was all sort of childhood for me, which is why uh, it helps that the person that I do the podcast with, my friend Seth Macy, um, is a bit older than me. So, like, he for the '90s was a time of like teenagerdom, early adulthood, where for me it was um, young childhood into teenagerdom. So, but I mean, some I I, I uh, have uh, gone back and seen a lot of things from the '90s in terms of pop culture. I've always sort of uh, you know. Like, when when I was, like, a kid in the 90s, and I was I, I was watching, like, you know, uh, Nick at Night and watching shows like Bob Newhart, and also, like, when I was, like, six, my favorite show was Dragnet, which now as an adult I find to be sort of inexplicable. But so I've uh, always, you know, sort of uh, had never had an issue sort of looking back in terms of pop culture. But, yeah, the 90s for me was sort of a, a time where I didn't necessarily, like, have a real sort of understanding of uh, pop culture other than a sort of a limited sort of bandwidth of what a child has access to, particularly at a time pre sort of internet where now, I mean, like a, a child could get to sort of any sort of pop culture that they could sort of uh, conceive of. But uh, uh yeah, so, uh, but it's, it's sort of more like reflective. And uh, the reason it's the nineties more than anything about like my child or anything is because the nineties, I, I realized it's becoming what the eighties had been uh, just, you know, the natural progression of time. And I would want to sort of, um, get out uh, ahead of that as i watched sort of a renaissance in terms of actual sort of a more substantive contemplation of sort of 80s pop culture i wanted to sort of get ahead of that in terms of 90s pop culture uh while it was becoming what the 80s was uh so to speak
0: yeah i think sometimes it seems like some of the cable stations seem to be living almost completely on episodes of friends and seinfeld which are both 90s television shows and uh in the past, as you can, as you point out, it was the 80s and so on and so forth. So it's like they're trying to aim towards people like you who were grew up with at that period of time and might want to go back and relive, relive, or revisit some of these um, pop culture materials and television and so on. Mm-hmm. So I guess it's not a surprise that Mystery Science Theater 3000 would be an important part of your interests, given that it's almost its entire life was in the 90s. Um could you just explain for anybody who might not know but uh what the background of the show was and and what was your personal experience as a viewer? How did you come to the show?
1: Sure. Well um the show uh was it's sort of a very sort of unique thing which are the parameters of pop culture. Um it's uh it was a show it originated in um Minnesota in the in the Twin Cities area, uh as a way of like, you know. Cause the, this was like this was like a UHF station back in the day when like there was less sort of things going on in the world of sort of television and they were showing like you know the cheapo sort of movies, monster movies, and horror movies that you know were sort of a quintessential sort of a, of things they would show on those sort of stations because they could block out a lot of time and a guy named Joel Hodgson had an idea to sort of uh, spruce this up a bit and they created a show where he and a couple of robots were uh, in. Outer space, and they would watch these movies, and they would make sort of comments and quips and jokes while watching the movies, and they were usually bad movies, so they could make fun of them. Or, and also they would have little sort of host segments in between to take people in out of commercial breaks, and sort of, and then that went to Comedy Central, where it lasted for several years uh, and, and gained enough popularity, enough of a cult following. To uh, ha- have a movie come out, although by that point, Joel was no longer with the show and had been replaced by Mike Nelson, who had been the head writer for the bulk of the show's run. And then it moved to Sci-Fi Channel, which is where I first found the show it was on, uh, as a kid was on the Sci-Fi Channel, uh, where it ran for three more seasons, but with a, a different cast and bear at the beginning. So it was sort of interesting to me, because like, when I found the show, Mr. Sears 3000, it was the show... With uh, Mike as the 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 human in space, and the 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 mads, the mad scientists, the uh, sort of ostensible villains of the piece were um, Pearl Forrester of uh, Bobo and uh, Professor Bobo and uh, a brain guy. Where whereas they, for most people who you know been watching the show, it was you know the mads were uh, Doctor Clayton Forrester and TV's Frank. So like when I I, I, I mentioned this in the book uh, briefly that. Uh, or at least I allude to it. and I specifically say that it was a thing that had been my personal experience, but I was watching Mr. Genesis, I Thousand a the kid, just sort of stumbled upon it and sort of really enjoyed it. And then when I saw the movie and then, you know, a, a different person is voicing T Robot, there's no Pearl, but there's this Dr. Forrester. Like I had no sort of context for that. And it was very sort of baffling to me because this, again, this is like, you know, I didn't have the history of the show at the time. I didn't even, I wasn't even aware of it's going be such a sort of run. So that, that was all stuff that has been, you know, after the fact. It wasn't actually even until I decided to write this book that I saw a single episode from the uh, first season of the show where the two Mads were uh, Dr. Forrester and, and Dr. Larry Earhart, who was p- performed by uh, Josh Weinstein, who was also the then voice of Tom Servo, who left the show after that first season. So that was a new experience to me, uh, sort of, as well. Uh, so it's just, you know, that's basically, I think, sort of covers uh, sort of the g- general uh, gist of what this show sort of was. It was, um, it was a venue for sort of a pop culture, sort of a conversation and jokes and community and sort of uh, irony and so on and so forth. And, uh, you know, a great show that I, I love right. to this day.
0: Yeah. Um, I think the first time I saw Mystery Science Theater of any sort was they used to run – a shortened version for that they were syndicated. And that was because I didn't have access to the comedy uh, first Comedy Channel and then Comedy Central. It was the same network changed names, but um, a lot it wasn't on a lot of cable systems and so I used to they used to show small segments from the actual from the series on you know, for an hour. And then of course when they showed up on sci fi I suddenly had access a hundred percent because the cable system happened to have sci-fi channels, so of course I'm in some ways like you in that most of what I remember from my initial memory was the sci-fi period, but even by then they were coming out with videotapes of the uh, I mean, legal ones, not even the, the trading ones, but legal ones where you could see, I think the first one they came out with was like The Brain Who Wouldn't Die, um, and a few other ones where you could actually uh, see the originals, and of course we know today The DVDs are still incredibly popular and uh, are selling quite well for Shout Factory, who's the company behind the current uh, re-release of them. Um, Of course, the the show depended on having the best bad movies. That's how, uh, you know, because you had to have bad movies to talk about or for the characters to talk about. How did they decide what films to riff? What was the process they had to go through? Uh,
1: Well, it was, you know, obviously they would they'd find a lot of films and they would be sent a lot of films and films would be packaged sort of together. And they're in different sort of, because a lot of those sort of old cheap B sort of movies would sort of be packaged together to be sold to be aired during like sort of uh, the horror host sort of shows to be shown locally. So, and then, you know, they could just get access to those. And then they'd have to be watched and screened. Frank Conniff who portrayed TV's Frank on the show was when he was on the show in charge of being the guy who would first watch these movies to see if it felt worthy of riffing, if it would sort of be appropriate for uh, riffing in terms of like the content, how much they'd have to cut out or what have you? Because in an early instance with the movie side hackers, which is an old sort of a, a B movie, a biker film, which those kind of films tend to be particularly sort of a uh, violent and, uh, and grotesque and it, uh, you know, a character suffered a pretty uh, particularly gruesome, sort of unpleasant ending, and they just had to completely excise that from the the film after they decided to do it. And it was sort of like a, it became a sort of like clunky um, sort of transition for them. They just had to sort of announce that the character was now dead and no longer in the film. Uh, and so from that point on, they became sort of more careful about it. And then that was what I presume it can continue to be the process is that somebody would have to screen a bunch of movies to see if they would sort of fit into the show. And then I presume then the process would begin of, you know, uh, watching it over and over and over again to uh, come up with the riffs to uh, put into the uh, finished product.
0: I think that's probably one of the things that as I first learned more and more that surprised me that, well, not surprised, but I could see now this, that, the, the, you know, the, the shows were written down. I mean, they were fully scripted. They There was not any – this was not something where they were uh, improvising. They had written everything word for word. And uh, so uh, you can imagine what kind of work was, was necessary to bring everything together, to, to put together something that at first glance, when you first listen to it, sounds like a bunch of guys sitting around their living room making fun of something that's on television.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and actually, uh, on sort of that, I actually, uh, perhaps unsurprisingly given my you know, uh, affinity for the show, have done a little bit of sort of writing r- uh, rift sort of things for um, little sort of internet things or what have you. And I remember like my first time doing it, you think, because like the the idea in your head is somebody like you and you, you're sitting at home and you're watching a movie, you think of a couple of funny clips you throw out there and it doesn't seem as too daunting. But I remember first sitting down to watch something with the intent of needing jokes for um, the riffing process on just a short. And it just, it feels like, it felt so like overwhelming. I kept feeling like I like can't keep up like in terms of like, cause things would come at you so fast. And when you're, when you have that actual uh, notion in your mind and have that actual plan in your mind, it's not just like an organic process. So, I mean, that's why they had to do it. So, I mean, they did it so many times, eventually it's going to slow down. Eventually you're going to memorize sort of the dialogue and, it also helps when it's a movie that's perhaps more slower paced, and uh, because then you get, you know, it's not as hard to sort of follow. And also helps because that way you don't have to worry so much about talking over dialogue. Like you have spaces to fill with your various riffs. But I, I can say from personal experience that first time when you sort of sit down to watch something with the intent of uh, of riffing on it, 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 it's a, a pretty daunting experience.
0: Yeah, yeah I, I I know what you mean. You can sort of tell. Well, especially early in the early seasons, where they were, or especially the first season, some of the early episodes, there would be long periods of time with nothing, you know, with just dialogue from the movie going on, and then suddenly they'd come in every once in a while. And as the seasons went on, we started to get films where it was almost nonstop sometimes, as far as how much they were doing. And I suspect you can see that change. And somebody who'd never seen any like. The Crawling Eye, which was the first episode that was aired on, you know, on regular cable. If you watched it today and you you only knew the later episodes, I could imagine it might have. It, it definitely seems a little bit strange because there's these long periods of time where it's just dialogue and they're not saying much of anything.
1: Yeah, and there's also um, they did in the early days, the KTMa days, which was the station in in uh, Minnesota. was a little bit more sort of uh, improvisational. Uh, and you can also sort of tell because it, it it's even like sort of slow, slower and uh, that sort of improvisational ishness sort of kind of goes into that early first season like in that in the Crawling Eye episode. I'm watching it, you can sort of see at times um, the people in the in the uh, in the theater um, sort of stumbling over each other, interrupting each other a little bit. Whereas in later seasons, when things were much you know four fully written, they could do extended bits. Uh, with, you know, perfect sort of alacrity without any sort of issue because it was all written down. And that was, uh, you know, a smart move that was, you know, an obvious uh, part of the process, the learning process of, you know, bring of creating television, developing television. It was a, they could not have obviously sustained a model of, you know, even sort of a partial improvisation. It just never would have, uh, never would have really worked for the long term.
0: Um, Let's start to talk about some of the specific films that you um talk about in the book um you did 12 right there's 12 films that you um discussed in the whole you didn't just discuss the film and how it was riffed but basically the entire episode to see how everything sort of fit together the first one you started with was Gamera but not the original not, not the one that most people probably have seen which is when it was done for Comedy Central but from the original KTMA episode um and you talk a lot, and pretty critical, and for good reason, and talk about how different this was to what even the final version of Gamera that was televised later. But did you see much in the version that you reviewed that could show that the series could be a
1: success? Well, uh, in... Um not really, actually. I mean, it's it's was interesting mostly as an art, like an art, anthropological, archaeological sort of thing, like the early days of the show. But that episode in particular was uh, fascinating. The reason I ended up cho- choosing that one was because it was a movie they had redone, and also it was because Gamera was sort of a, I mean, it's sort of a fairly well-known kaiju uh, character, it made a lot of Gamera movies and what have you. But by sort of uh, serendipity... It also was a perfect sort of exemplar of the sort of constraints and issues with making, you know, cheap local access UHF television because when they're making that particular episode of Tr- Trace and uh, Josh, the, the, who portrayed um, uh, Crow and Tom, were both unable to be there. Um, when they were doing the, the riffing in the theater, be, just because simply they did this wasn't their full time work, it was like, and they so they had to be elsewhere. So, in the theater, when they're doing the riffing, it's just Joel, and so it's one man improvising riffs, and it is just the slowest of going. And it was, I mean, like, and like the riffs are not. I mean, it's very sort of basic stuff that well, people think of, like, people riffing movies, like, talking about, like, oh, that looks cheap, or "Oh, that character did something dumb. It's a lot more of that as opposed to the much more sort of elaborate, clever, uh, reference-heavy stuff that would become. Like, this is very much – it's very primitive. And there was some – there is some elements of humor that were more obvious in the host segments around the movie. But when you see just Joel sitting in that theater – watching Gamera by himself, making the occasional comment. I would never have looked at that and said, this is going to become one of the most sort of event of brilliant and hilarious shows in the history of television.
0: Yeah. I think number one, as you point out, I think part of it was that he was by himself. I've never heard of the concept that if you're going to make fun of something, you've got to hope that there's other, you need an audience. And we're not just talking about the television audience. It's when, have a few people together and in fact if you on a lot of the episodes that I've watched you can sort of see the progression that it's always in the same order of who has a line and when somebody's doing it all by themselves it could I can see how that could be really use the word I mean I don't know if you use the word deadly but it was pretty close to that and as you say that they, they redid it and it's just unbelievable how the camera that they later did and and in, it's now available you know as part of the DVD sets um, how different they were able to make it.
1: I think they actually the DVD set I I feel like they put all the gammas together Yeah, they for did. DVD set. Yeah, because they did several of those.
0: They, yeah, and of course they're, the good thing about Gamma is because there are characters that are in all of you know, there's a certain I think it's Kenny's the boy he's in them regularly so they can always refer back where and it becomes a run, running part of the running gags of the series that they can Talk about him, and it is an interesting uh, way. And of course, the KTMA episodes aren't even officially available in any way, shape, or form. And I suspect we know why. I don't think anybody really wants them to be seen officially. So let's move on now to Pod People. And This is one of the ones that it was. This was one of the ones that came out on videotape when the series was still going on. Um, but I also found it to be one of the best ones because. It was a good example of how they would come up with catchphrases that they would use regularly throughout a movie and sometimes into later movies. And, of course, um, the one in, in this case for pod people is It Stinks, where which actually was dubbed. Um, I think the original film, it was dubbed over from a foul language, but he holds up his OK sign and says It Stinks, and they start using that pretty regularly throughout the film. What did you see was so special about Pod People?
1: Well, Pod People, I was really, uh, actually I had that VHS too. It was probably one of my first uh, sort of uh, exposures to the Joel era. And when actually when I did it, I was doing a different interview uh, and promoting my book. And somebody asked like, if you were going to recommend episodes to people or episodes to somebody who hadn't seen the show before, uh, I recommended a Joel and a Mike one. The Joel one I recommended was Pod People because I think it is one of the best episodes of the show uh it is because it's sort of ideal because the movie they're riffing on pod people is uh truly uh mind-bogglingly atrocious but in a way that is really funny it's part horror film part et rip off um and it's uh it is a and it's just really sort of a great synthesization of like what makes the show so good like in the various different running jokes and the um the the host segments like when they because you mentioned the whole day it stinks thing it's uh after this sort of musician in the movie sings this sort of a terrible song and then they do a host segment where it's Joel singing the song sort of ostensibly but with you know sort of nonsense lyrics and when they and when they cut to the down deep thirteen where Doctor Fortune and TV's Frank are and they're taken on the role of, like, the producers and Frank's wearing the I'm a Virgin shirt that the guy in the movie's wearing. It's like it's one of the sort of best, funniest sort of host segments that they've done. It's just a, a great episode. It's not necessarily monumental in any sort of sense of, like, you know, a big sort of epic turn in the show, like one of the characters or whatever. It's just really a great choice of movie combined with some great riffing, and it just makes it a really wonderful... Uh, you know hour and a half of television.
0: Yeah, I think uh I think you've got you hit it right on the head. I think by this point they were really hitting their stride so to speak, um doing some really good work and they it, it, they were working together so well that by this point a movie like Pod People just as you point out, it, it was just a perfect example, and it doesn't really, you know, it's the kind of thing where if somebody didn't see the series at all beforehand, they would still get it, and I suspect you're right. They'd be laughing at it pretty well. well just for interest, what was the Mike episode you you suggested in that interview?
1: I'm trying, I want to say that I, uh, I recommended Werewolf because that's one of my favorite episodes, and it's also one that you can sort of uh, – just jump into i feel like i probably went with werewolf because it's like i said it's like you know pretty it's a not as funnily bad of a movie although it is a bad movie but i just think it's got some really funny riffs in it i and i i love uh the bit where mike and the bots do the girl group song about the the werewolf and it's just i feel like that's probably the one i went with cause it's one of my favorite episodes so that's probably a good bet off the top of my head for what i went with
0: of course, one of the other films I wanted to make sure we discussed was Manos, The Hands of Fate, because most of the time anybody who has who is a fan of the series will usually point to that movie, that, that episode, as being one of the best of the series. And, of course, it's usually considered one of the worst films ever made. What was your thoughts on Manos, and did it make a good, perfect combination between great riffing and, bad, and great um, writing, and, and a really bad movie.
1: man. The Manos episode is a great episode, although I don't know if it's quite as great as some other episodes. I, the reason that it is a iconic episode is not so much for what MST3K brought to it, but because Manos, The Hands of Fate, is uh, quite possibly, honestly, truthfully, the worst movie I've ever seen. It is staggeringly, w- bizarrely, poorly made, in terms of like, everything about it. It and I went sort into the story of the movie in the book. And it's a story that's got a little too much depth to it. And uh, and you know, I don't mean uh, you know, as uh, cheap as a play as it may be to be like, hey, you know, the story's in the book, so if you're interested in the full story, it's in the but it's a, a a completely amateur filmmaker making a film that is amateurish by amateur filmmaking standards. It's just fascinating, but it's also sort of endearing in that sense of the it's sort of like what people like a movie like that that documentary American movie. It's, you know, like, a, or what, what people like the concept of Ed Wood as put out by the Tim Burton movie, Ed Wood, as opposed to the actual Ed Wood. It was just sort of like a, a, a cheap, sleazy filmmaker, as opposed to sort of the idealist, um, uh, na- naive that he is in the Tim Burton movie. But uh, the movie is so bad, that this episode was sort of destined to be become iconic just because even though this is a show that is built on riffing bad movies to find the movie, this poor uh, is a, a true feat. And that makes it a very memorable episode. It's a very funny episode too. It, it is an enjoyable episode and it, it introduced Torgo into the lexicon of mystery 3000. He is these, um, sort of the, the, the master the he of the movie. He's like the, sort of like the kind of sense of a main villain. He's the henchman, this strange, um, character that, uh, with the guy who did the performance has a very sort of bafflingly bizarre um, uh, sort of avant-garde performance. And that sort of – Torgal became a piece of the uh, Ministry of Theater Two Thousand puzzle based on that fact. But it, it is definitely an episode. But it's, it's like when I was talking about episodes I, I'd recommend people seeing for the first time. I definitely would not recommend Mandos because it is very too much of a potentially – alienating experience for people who are not sort of actively uh, interested and engaged in the show, and particularly in bad movies, because this movie is um, at times even sort of like challenging, even with the help of the people from Mystery Science 3000, I couldn't imagine trying to watch this movie without them. It would be a a, a really bizarre and probably unpleasant experience.
0: Yeah, I know I've read interviews in which they've discussed some of the films they chose, and the whole idea of okay, do you want to have a movie that is so bad that people don't even want to see the movie and therefore will ignore it? Um, There's been, you know, this Manos definitely qualifies as one of the worst, of course. One of the other ones that I always think of was probably one of the worst ever made, which, of course, they did not riff, was Plan 9 from Outer Space. Although they did do Robot Monster, which is another one that has a reputation as being such a terrible movie, but they did do Robot Monster. But... um, I agree. I can see how Manos, because the movie is so strange, that uh, will people sit through it if they don't have, if they're not already invested in the whole MST3K concept. Yeah. So, of course, you also made sure to get Mitchell in um, in your book. Of course, that was the famous or infamous transition episode from Joel to Mike. It was Joel's last uh, episode as host, and and Mike's first. Although he had been a Mike had appeared in various other episodes as you know side characters and things. This was when he took over, or at the end actually takes over. He he's just in the background for much of it, but it's also a very good episode. It's another one where you could watch it and you're just going to laugh at it because it is it's so well done. But did you think they did a good job in transitioning from one host to the other with with Mitchell?
1: Uh, yeah, I think, I mean, in terms of, like, this is, like, the episode, like, a lot of times the host segments are just sort of, like, little goofy things, occasionally ripping on the movie, occasionally not, just sort of, like, little comedy sketches to sort of break up the uh, potential monotony of watching a bad movie. Whereas in this episode, there's actually a little bit of a story going on because there's the whole, because they need to have, you need to do something to get Joel out and to replace him with Mike. And they didn't want us to do it arbitrarily. So there's a whole sort of story going on about Gypsy's worried that, you know, the bats are going to kill Joel. So she's got to save Joel and she helps. So she's got to make a plan to help Joel escape. And he ends up escaping uh with a, in a machine appropriately uh, called the Deus Ex Machina, which has been kept in a box of ham dingers. And then, you know, so he's able, there's a whole actual, almost sort of arc of narrative going through it that, you know, it's funny, but it's also, you know, well done and it justifies, you know, why Joel is leaving and how Joel is leaving uh, while also sort of hanging a lampshade on the fact that, like, yeah, this is a little convenient that we have this uh, this machine, this escape pod so found. And then, you know, transitioning the mic, uh, fair enough, uh, in terms of, like, you know, having him be there. And obviously uh, then, you know, it still was going to be, you know, a change uh, and there was going to be some issues with them there always was, and there always will be sort of debates between Joel versus Mike in terms of being a host, but in terms of actually making that transition, uh, I feel like they did a, it in about as clever as the way as they were going to manage, considering the fact they were not a narrative first show.
0: But yeah, you're right. I mean, but as I say, it also helped that the film, you know, Mitchell just was perfect. I don't know. I didn't get a chance to don't notice. So uh, I know that, uh, Mitchell uh, Joe Don Baker had no knew about MST three K and and I don't think he was a major fan, so to speak. And I think what they did with Mitchell probably had a lot to do with that because he doesn't come acro- come through it very well as far as being uh, what they how they treated him.
1: Yeah, that was, that one's actually kind of sort of because it's one of the more sort of. Um, professionally made movies that's been on the show with a lot of sort of notable actors, including Jordan Baker, who had been, in, who was in Walking Tall and, and some other films. And uh, so it's, it's interesting in that sense, because it's like, you know, it's not a good movie, but it's not like one of the bizarre sort of cheap, uh, out of left field sort of horror movies or monster movies that they've done. And that it's actually sort of got a, a professional sheen to it, which I feel like helps uh, every now and then to have a movie that has some recognizable people and uh, that's got a, at least an air of competence to it. If you're going to be, you know, picking it apart and you.
0: Yeah, no, they were forced. In some cases, they're they were forced to to hit movies that you know, use movies that were you know dubbed Italian movies or other con- from foreign movies that were brought over to the United States and dubbed. And sometimes those movies where you don't really know who anybody is in the film, I can see how that makes for a little bit more, tr- you know, could be more troublesome when they're trying to do their work. Where Mitchell. Uh, worked out so perfectly. So, MST3K is one of those television shows that actually made a movie, and then of course went back to television again. But you talk, whole, you, you you have a whole chapter about the movie, about the film, and and I agree with what you say in it. I mean, it it wasn't a successful. I mean, if it was a tele- even a television episode, it wouldn't be considered one of the more tech- successful ones. But what was the film they chose for the project, and why do you think? What were the problems that they ran into when they made it that it didn't really succeed?
1: Well, the, the film that they chose to show in the uh, in the movie because the movie is just basically like the TV show. Like I said it's basically an episode of the TV show made into a movie but sort of counterintuitively is actually shorter than most episodes of the TV show. Uh, The movie that they show is This Island, Earth, which is a film which has, in terms of notable actors, Russell Johnson, who played the professor on Gilligan's Island, which leads to uh, a variety of jokes, obviously, related to Gilligan's Island, the professor. But it's sort of a... a it feels like a good choice for a movie because it's a nice sci-fi movie with some cheap looking costumes, some ridiculous look, looking aliens, a sort of a traditional bland, you know, all-American lead. And it would have been perfectly fine as an episode of, like, a, of TV, but the fact that they tried to put this in, into a film is basically just like an episode of the movie, uh, or an episode of the show, I should say, but with longer and better shot and more... Tactically rich uh, um, interstitial sort of host segments, and they got to show a few other th- segments of the uh, of the satellite. I love the ship, and that's kind of cool, I guess. But it just it it was a strange sort of fit. It's like it would be like it's a it's like it's good. It's job It's Mister Space Three Thousand. But then when they turned it into a film, which one trying to take an idea of this sort of idiosyncratic and turning it into a film, I don't know if it was the necessarily best idea. Uh, in general, and then when they made the film, they decided to release it in road movie fashion, which is to say they went from like city to city with the movie and showed it there for a little while, so no word of mouth ever really got a chance to build and they would sort of move on. So the movie was largely a disaster at the box office because they decided to do that for whatever reason. And this was not ne- this was never a thing that was going to get anybody who wasn't a fan of the show to show up, anyways. Because like I remember like seeing Adford on, on TV when the movie came out and it's like, if you had no clue and you're seeing these little robot silhouettes making jokes while another movie's playing, it's, you know, it's a hard sell. And so the the movie was, well, you know, in terms of content was, you know, fine. It was a funny episode of Mr. 2000 that was shown in movie theaters, but in terms of actually the concept and execution of it as a movie in terms of marketing and distribution, it was really um pretty much a failure and you know it sort of uh disabused him of the notion of ever uh, doing something like that again.
0: I think part of the other thing and this is one of the things that you mentioned earlier with the, the bad guys, sort of the in this case the mad the mad scientists. In this case there was only you know it was only Dr. Forrester. He was the only so I in my opinion that's part of the thing that you know he had nobody to bounce off of where what was so great with the earlier seasons was you always had two people, you know, Dr. Forrester, and then, you know, most of the time TV's Frank, and it really did make for a greater, a better way to have two characters talking to each other, and in this case, when it was just Dr. Forrester, it was, it made for a, I thought, it sort of made it more static, you know, there was, but you're right, it was interesting that they had the opportunity to to spruce everything up, but I thought part of the charm of the series was everybody knew everything was just sort of you know done on the fly seemingly and and put together the way it was Where here they really it just seemed like that was not really necessary the the for for what they were really trying to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we so then it was soon after the film that they moved to sci-fi channel. Uh what did you think oh, One of the big differences with the sci-fi channel is that most of the films always were pretty much all either science fiction, horror, those kind of things, fantasy, as opposed to the original seasons where you would occasionally get like Mitchell, which was like a a police film or a crime film. What were one or two of the um, um, sci-fi channel uh, episodes that you thought were particularly good for that for that segment of the series
1: uh well one of them is a, a movie that uh, I, I put in the book and, and probably rivals manos in terms of uh badness of the movie and that's hobgoblins um, which is a really weird poorly made sort of kind of Gremlinish ish ripoff uh, that is very much dated to the 80s uh, the sort of the hobgoblins are these real cheap looking puppets and it's just its that movie's probably more laughably bad than Manos to had a fa. fa- it's pro- it's not as technically uh, incompetent of a movie, but in terms of being funny in its badness, it's probably the funniest movie in and of itself that was ever on a Mystery Science theater 3000. Um, And that led to a lot of sort of really excellent sort of riffing opportunities just because there's so much fodder within that uh, movie for making fun of. Like it's a movie that if you were watching it by yourself, you could probably get if you were the kind of person who is interested in watching bad movies for the sake of it, you could get a lot of enjoyment out of it just because of how bad it is itself. But having, you know, Mr. Sonsier 2000 treatment only takes it to another level. So that's definitely high up there. Where else from that time? I already mentioned that one. Uh, there's actually quite a few good movies that came during the, the sci-fi era or good episodes. And they did eventually get a little more sort of lenient in terms of the whole sci-fi thing. But I, off the top of my head, don't recall necessarily many particularly uh, like notable or strong episodes that came. I mean, uh, they showed another Joe Don Baker movie, Final Justice. The last movie they ever showed was a, a Italian heist movie called Diabolik, which is sort of an interesting choice for a last episode. as much as they like, you would think that probably it would end with something more science fiction-y, particularly being on a sci-fi channel. But you know it is what it is there, but there's a lot of good episodes. Like people like may think, Oh, they, you know, they, they changed networks. Maybe the show took a step down, but I, there's a lot of still really funny episodes that are from the sci-fi channel era.
0: Of course, for the last episode, when they, they knew it was the last episode too, because they do give a, you know, they do end the story completely at the end. So it's probably not a surprise that their attitude was, well, we're not coming back anyway. So <laughs> we might as well do whatever film we can get. Um, but, uh, course one of the things that the earlier episodes had pretty regularly but not so much in the sci-fi era and you wrote a whole chapter about it are the shorts um i still consider them in general to be some of my favorite parts of the show um i still I, i can watch some of them multiple times and still laugh every time because they the great thing is is over over the years we've gotten collections that were just shorts and it's gotten to a point now where you you watch some of them, and because I think partly because they're so short, and therefore can be very specific, that makes them some of the funniest parts of the of the show. And sort of talk, explain a little bit about why we were seeing shorts in the first place over time in the series, and going from that, what were some of your personal favorites as far as how they uh, handled the shorts.
1: Well, the thing. Well, basically, the shorts came about because sometimes a movie, like particularly in the early days of B movies, when they were literally movies that were being shown like in theaters before the, the A movie, the main feature, would show. They'd often be fairly short movies, sometimes like you know, barely over an hour long. And then you have to cut some of that out for sort of like content or for time, or because there's not a lot of fodder there. And you got an episode of TV that is without commercials, like an hour and a half or so of uh, content and so like you'd have some time if you wanted to show a movie that would be particularly rich for you know uh, making jokes about and riffing but you would had a little bit of time left over you could stick a short in there and it, these would be little short films at first they would show parts of old movie serials which were like these little short films that would again in the sort of the old school era when you're going to a movie theater was a major experience where there'd be like you know a serial, a B movie, an A movie the main feature and so on and so forth They started with these like Phantom Creeps with Bela Lugosi and Radar Men on the Moon. But then eventually they transitioned into what people think of primarily when they think of the shorts, in both in the show and in general, which were like little short films that were usually educational, like things trying to teach children about cheating or a like proper posture or like sort of industrial shorts about the chicken of tomorrow or so on and so forth, or things that were selling things. Like uh, this is a nice way to transition to my favorite of all the shorts, which is uh, Mr. B. Natural, which is uh, – a Sure, it was made by a musical instrument company. I believe it's Khan Instruments was the the company who did it. It's a very bizarre, almost sort of nightmarish film about this sprightly gentleman, Mister B. Natural, was played by a woman, in sort of Peter Pan style, who shows up, gives a very like off putting sort of performance as this sort of a, a musical manifestation who's teaching a boy the joys of musical instruments. And it's just really weird and uh, uh, sort of like off-putting, but uh, really funny. And, you know, it gives obviously plenty putting a fodder in that sense. Another short similar to that is the uh, a short that uh, was um, A Case of Spring Fever, which is somehow basically a movie saying that springs are good, uh, which is a, a, it's a reminiscent of a, a bit they, uh, they did on an episode of The Simpsons wherein Lisa's class was watching a movie about the importance of zinc, and, and it's the same premise of like he wishes there'd be no s- springs in his life, and that he sees the world without springs. And this fact, combined with uh, this this you know bit of the Simpsons, leads me to believe that these are probably an inordinate amount of these sort of little short films that were expressing the unseen value of things people were taking for granted, or or what have you. But it's it's just a very strange uh film uh that has this like this little animated sprite of springs and it's a uh, it's another very sort of strange one and there's some other good sort of industrial ones a couple good ones about college there's a couple of them that are about like being in love or romance it's like a lot of you know scolding of teenagers and so on and so forth to try and teach people the right way to live as per the uh, examples put forth by the people who you know make uh, industrial short educational films.
0: Yeah, I think a few of them were actually, like, like even Mr. B. Natural, it, it really is nothing more than a commercial for the company that produced it. They keep pushing their own <laughs> instruments and so on. And I think that's the way with some of the other ones, as you point out. Uh, some were more meant to be educational, such as the ones that were produced by a company called Coronet, which they did quite a few of. But some of them are really nothing more than commercials. And it is interesting to see how the the products that were actually being advertised were sort of stuck in the middle in, in parts. But um, I don't know, to say, I thought the, the use of the shorts, there were times where um, – the short was for me the best part of a particular episode. And, um, so I'm glad that I, and I do believe they are still some of the more popular, um, aspects of there's been a couple of the books written with essays about mystery science theater 3000. And each of the two books that I've seen makes sure that there's at least one chapter that discusses the shorts. And I think that was probably one of the reasons, um, so why does Mystery Science Theater 3000 still hold up? I know that's, it, that's a diff, probably an impossible question to ask, but I think it's worth discussing. Shout Factory, which, as I mentioned, is, already, is the current publisher of the DVD sets. They're, they're coming out with new sets on a regular basis, and now you can watch episodes through Netflix and some of the other digital platforms. Why is Mystery Science Theater still popular?
1: Well, I mean, uh, the the facile way to begin the answer because be to say it because it was great, it was really good, really funny, and well-made. But beyond that, it's also very sort of idiosyncratic in terms of, like, there's not anything that's really come to replace it, and anything that has sort of kind of stepped into that Mystery Science of the Year 2000 um, uh, shadow is like a rift tracks or a Cinematic Titanic, which are two things that were made by the Mystery Science Theater 2,000 people. Uh, there's been sort of pale imitators, uh, sure, but nothing with this sort of level of uh, competence or quality. And so like, if you are interested in sort of the highest order of film ripping, and, you know, Mystery Science Theater 2,000 is pretty much the only place to go. Oh, and it's sort of also a internally, um, uh, uh, perpetually... Um, it's a thing that people are always going to sort of have an interest in. I can't really ever necessarily get, because a bad, like a good movie may seem dated and that would be a negative, but a bad movie getting dated only adds to the quality of the experience in sort of a backwards way. And these sort of like you said, the lo-fi aesthetics of the show that were always there and part of the endearing quality of the show, they don't have as much just to have a much of a negative impact as the show ages because it always had that sort of look and always had that quality sort of people who who uh, fanfit had probably people had a sort of an affinity like you said for that sort of lo-fi style so it basically built itself in such a way that it would always feel sort of um necessary and could never really go out of style uh, just because uh, there's nothing about it that really could do that. Like people making jokes about movies and pop culture is, and it is sort of an internally repeating sort of thing. So it's just, and it's like still to this day, the pinnacle of that um, sort of a genre, so to speak. So that, that's why I feel like it's, it remains popular is because, you know, people will always have an interest in this and there's nobody who has come to really, you know, challenge for that throne to this date.
0: So what other projects, do you have other book projects Do you're still working on or are you just going back to your regular writing or do you have some more Mystery Science Theater 3000 ideas in mind?
1: Uh, well, I am I'm in the early stages of um, the same publisher. Hopefully this will come together. It's not official yet, but it's far enough along. I don't mind mentioning it, that I'm working on putting together a book that will be sort of in a for people who are fans of Mr. Century Thousand, probably will have an interest in this as well, sort of a encyclopedic book about the various local horror hosts from uh, across the country for, throughout history. Uh, horror hosts people people who would host shows um, or they would host these little evening, midnight movie features in local networks with their various different guises of characters, and they would introduce the movie. People probably are familiar with maybe Elvira, probably the most famous of these um, Vampira, sort of the initial person who did this way back in the '50s, who appeared in the movie *Planet from Our Space*, sort of tied up back in. there. sort of a hey, I'm working on sort of that, and it's in the early sort of stages of that. And beyond that, just my traditional sort of um, writing things I'm doing, and uh, you know, we're still doing the existential parachute pants stuff. Uh, I'm uh, working on some. Other things that aren't sort of necessarily far enough along to really uh, get into, but I guess, you know, people would be interested in the, um, that, the, the, the horror host book or this book or anything I'm, I'm working on, But uh, there's always information to be found at my Twitter, which is uh, at ChrisXMorgan. And, you know, in this modern era, people like me who are writers, like when we are doing something. You could find it on the Twitter.
0: <laughs> That's how I found you. That's how I got a hold of you. It was the easiest way to find you um Of course, speaking of movie hosts uh horror movie hosts, I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, and of course, I was Goulardi. around when guulardi uh okay. started was going on and it was a very short period of time that he that he actually did the show, but that was probably for me at least the best example I could think of and for somebody who started that way, and then Ernie Anderson, who played Killard, he ended up with an incredible voiceover career. That um, to the, it was just unbelievable how successful he became. Starting off, like you say, as a, as a monster movie host.
1: And, of course, uh, he's the father of uh, the acclaimed director, Paul Thomas Anderson.
0: Right. So, uh, but, yeah, that's an interesting project because, like you say, there's there were a lot of them. And it's, not, and it's not something we we see anymore because local television stations don't really show movies the same way they used to back then. As you pointed out earlier, it was a matter of they had to fill up a lot of time sometimes. And especially in the at night and in the evenings when you had to, this period of time to fill, and even during the afternoon we had different hosts, but they weren't monster hosts. They were more just a person would come on and do a, a quiz and things and try to get people to stay on and continue to watch the films. But nowadays that's not something that we've, we have in any way, shape, or form.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So, uh, well, that's great. Uh, I really, like I say, I I found the book very good. I really enjoyed reading about some of the background and and your critiques because I think that's the key thing. I mean, the people who are real MST3K fans, they like talking about and writing about the episodes and and the way they came through to them. And I think you did a a really great job of, of presenting your views, but also some of the background information that I think gives it even more um, interest as far as understanding the series. And I'm uh, glad we had this conversation. Thanks for joining me.
1: Oh, thanks for having me.
0: Thanks to Chris Morgan for talking with me. I hope you will check out his podcast, Existential Parachute Pants. This is Joel Cherney, and I will be back soon with more new books in film.